Thanks for listening to The Gist. If you want to check out an ad-free version and bonus content, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. It is the best way to directly support our endeavors. It's Thursday, February 23rd, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg was in East Palestine, Ohio today to meet with residents who lived near the site of a train derailment and subsequent burn-off of toxic chemicals. For a few weeks, 23 days in fact, no members of the media, right or left, and I hear this is a thing, or center, unbiased, asked Buttigieg about the derailment. Then Fox made it a story of the day, a raison d'etre, a cause celeb, and now everyone who is suspicious of Buttigieg's further political ambitions is pressing him on his silence and inaction on the issue. I never thought I'd see conservatives have this much of a Palestinian occupation. Now... To be clear, it is Palestine, not Palestine. Americans do have an odd tendency to name towns after cities in other countries and then pronounce them wrong, or at least differently than the original country did. It's Berlin, New Hampshire, not Berlin. It's Prague, Oklahoma, not Prague. Why the latter? Maybe the Sooners were checked out. But it is Palestine, which would be but a small detail, unless you're an intrepid reporter trying to speak for the little guy who has no voice. So at least give them an accurate name when you give them a voice. This was not done in the following confrontation between Secretary Buttigieg and Savannah Hernandez of Charlie Kirk's Turning Points USA. Mayor Kate, why did it take you an entire two and a half weeks to actually get here to respond to East Palestine? Will you apologize to the residents of this city? This city of East Palestine, not Palestine. A city you care so much about you don't even know the actual name of. Also, if you want to comment, better not to start off with Mayor Pete to the Secretary of Transportation. I mean, you can. It's not wrong, but it is diminutive. And usually when you're trying to elicit a quote, you try not to insult the person. That wasn't really the point of what Savannah Hernandez of Turning Point USA was trying to do. She didn't really want to comment. She wanted a confrontation. The video continues for over two minutes with Hernandez turning the camera on Buttigieg's press secretary who says calmly over and over, I would be happy to comment. I just prefer not to do it on camera. And then Hernandez, who won't relent, jumps into the frame. All right, y'all. So we are with the press okay, secretary for Pete Buttigieg. And right now we are being told that we are not supposed to be filming. Again, we are well, here right on behalf now, of the American public because we would like to have the conversation and we would like to ask the question as to why, um, again, it took almost three weeks for Pete Buttigieg to be here on the ground. Uh, He waited until Donald Trump came here to actually be here and speak to residents. Uh, The people here have been quite tight-knit about when we can ask questions. And again, we're here on behalf of the American They are being tight-knit. Are they? Are they being closely bonded? Are they in solidarity? Maybe she means close-lipped? I don't know. Maybe Savannah Hernandez wanted to tell us or tell Buttigieg, he is the Secretary of Transportation, that loose knits sink slips. Now, actually, when I think about the tight-knit thing, my thesis, right, Savannah Hernandez doesn't know or care about the people of East Palestine, but that clip, if anything, is a point in her favor. She's maybe just a general idiot who lacks a, I don't know, a way with worms, as they say. Another right-wing media member with Ben Shapiro's network waylaid Pete Buttigieg on the streets of D.C. a couple of days ago. What do you have to say to the folks in Ohio, East Palestine, who are suffering right now 
Well, I've referred to about a dozen interviews I've given today. He said that by that point, he had offered numerous statements about the people of East Palestine. I know it's an unusual pronunciation. It, quote unquote, should be Palestine. And I know that if pronouncing things wrong meant you didn't care or you were insincere, then I might be subject to that very criticism. I mean, there was some Antwintig and Tantwig confusion in a popular podcast now available ad-free at subscribe.mikepasca.com. But I think it's pretty clear that the reason that these reporters, sorry, as Savannah might say, that these members of the forced estate sale are doing what they're doing is not that they especially care about the Palestinians, but because they want to damage Buttigieg or elevate themselves or appeal to their audiences by sticking it to Pete. It's important to note that in East Palestine, no one has died. There have been no long-term hospitalizations. The EPA has tested the air and water. It's cleared both tests. Tap water is safe to drink. Government officials are reassuring the public by gulping it down. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine, not DeWine, has said he will stay in the town when asked by a local resident and business owner in a CNN town hall. Would, would you, you stay? Would he's would asking you if come you would stay? Question, if you would stay in East Palestine, would you come and spend yes. the night there? You would until, this, until yes. the cleanup is done. You'll stay with us within the one mile. Yes, I've, yes, I've been there. I've been there three times for I, a few I, hours. Well, Have you, will you there. stay overnight for a period of time? Yeah, that aired on CNN. DeWine sought to convey sincerity. The townspeople, a close-lipped community, are certainly sincere. And Jake Tapper, who you heard at the beginning of the clip, certainly seemed to care. He at least said, Palestine. On the show today, Governor Mike DeWine and East Palestine. Actually, it's Palestine, which angry reporters should know if they bothered to care. Or on the show today, Florida Senator Rick Scott is certainly saying all the wrong things on the question of bringing down the debt. But is the wrong thing just that we need to bring down the debt? But first, we continue our conversation with Andrew S. Weiss, a former administration Russia expert, couple administrations, in fact. He talks about his thoughts on Ukraine, if Putin will ever withdraw from the war. And we discuss the choices he made in turning a biography of Vladimir Putin into a graphic novel, Accidental Czar, The Life and Lies of Vladimir Putin. Andrew Weiss up next. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. 
We're joined once more by Andrew S. Weiss, Vice President of the Carnegie Endowment for Peace, former Russia expert at the NSC, the State Department, the Defense Department, that that spanned the Clinton and George H.W. Bush White Houses. So who better to put together a graphic novel about Putin, Accidental Czar, The Life and Lies of Vladimir Putin? As we established yesterday, the depth of Weiss's expertise runs deeper than the colored page. So I put it to him. I asked him to rebut a common idea. I tried to give voice to the best version of this argument that Russian interference in the U.S. election in 2016 was more or less a normal part of the U.S. versus Russia dynamic as of late. It is well documented that the U.S. sought to influence the Serbian elections of the late 90s. That is a state in the Russian sphere. And what we saw in 2016 was more similar to that and to other U.S. interventions in Russia and Russiaville, then it was dissimilar. So what about that? There is a a sort of false pattern matching and equivalence and whataboutism to everything you just said. What I focus on in the book is how starting in Serbia, where people may remember there was a, a bloody series of wars in the 1990s in the Balkans that the then Serbian leader Slobodan Milosevic instigated, Um, And at some point, he was overthrown by a student-led popular uprising. The U.S. had a hand in helping those students get organized and trying to figure out what the pressure points were that would lead to Milosevic's overthrow. That, in the Russian minds and Putin's mind, is called a color revolution. This became a term of art that they are fully convinced of is the way you explain any uprising in the Arab world or in the post-Soviet countries. And it's always got to be the responsibility of deep state U.S., CIA, State Department, tech companies like Google, NGOs, you name it. And it's all somehow orchestrated by these really you know, secretive forces that control the U.S. government. That has animated, that fear has animated Putin since this all happened in 2000. And it's the thing that when you think about what Putin cares about the most is staying in power. It's the thing that really keeps him up at night. And it was precisely the the pattern that we talked about earlier of popular uprisings in Ukraine, the country that's closest to Russia, that has the most, arguably the biggest impact on Russia's perceptions of its security in 2004, and then again in 2014, that made Putin vibrate the most and think, wow, this is the dry run. They're coming for me next. I'm going to be overthrown and I'll be strung up like Muammar Gaddafi. I can't allow that. And so the best response to that fear is lashing out and doing things to put your opponents off balance. And that's why Crimea was annexed. It's why the covert war in eastern Ukraine begins in the spring of 2014. And then like any leader who thinks this is, you know, I got to adjust or things are going my way. I need to reinvest and put more muscle behind these policies. Putin just keeps going and he does things that spin out of control. So there's the shoot down of the Malaysian jet airliner because he's giving the proxy forces in Ukraine more and more sophisticated weapons and they use them against this civilian airliner and tragically 300 people get killed. In the case of the United States presidential election in 2016, part of what was going on with Putin was he was responding to the pressure that Western governments put on him after the war in Ukraine began in 2014. And he was looking for ways to create splits between the United States and Europe or to kind of make our societies less uh, less equipped to keep that pressure campaign going on. And by exploiting the very obvious uh, polarization that existed 
in most Western countries after the financial crisis in 2008. So, you know, support for Tea Party type groups, Donald Trump being a kind of, you know, the, the Tea Party on steroids, all was of a piece. So it was not a question of the U.S. did this first and I am therefore entitled to do this. It was much more about what do I have to work with that's going to make Germany, France, the United Kingdom and the United States less able to keep the heat on me? And how do I create problems for those countries at home and the way their politics are going and who runs those countries in a way that'll be favorable to Russia? Yes, that certainly explains Putin's mindset and motivation. But to check in again on this idea, well, the U.S. did it first. Another example of that, which is probably what about ism too, is Putin interfered in U.S. elections before 2016 as well. So maybe the nexus between Putin and Trump isn't as strong as some would make it out. What do you think of that? Well, think about it. The Soviet KGB mucked around in people's domestic politics, as you say, going back to the 50s and 60s. That was who they were. Most of that stuff didn't work very well. And it would not, you know, you could never say that, you know, for example, Reagan lost his second term because the Soviet Union mounted a propaganda operation to say Reagan is a warmonger, which they did. Didn't work. In the case of a very close election in 2016, there's no way to prove that Russian interference was decisive. But you can definitely say that two things happened. One, we had a, a presidential candidate and later president who welcomed Russia's support and who was lying to the American people about his efforts to monetize his candidacy. And it was that sort of horrible combination of things that made then President Trump so defensive and so scared of any scrutiny of, well, what were your ties to Russia and what was motivating you to welcome, for example, the leaks of John Podesta's emails and use that to discredit your opponent, Hillary Clinton. Like all of that was happening in a way that was, I think it's sort of like, it comes back to the lottery analogy, like well beyond anything the Russians dreamed of. And so the analogy that I often draw is they were like the hijackers on 9-11 who showed that you could take a box cutter or some you know other form of simple technology and create a spectacular effect. And the fact that they crashed U.S. democracy and, you know, tipped an election is remarkable. But we shouldn't forget, you know, they were also being nice to Jill Stein and doing things to amplify kind of anti-establishment politics on the far left side of the spectrum, just as much as they were playing footsie with the, the anti-establishment crowd that was around Trump. Do you think they did tip the election? Well, if you look at how many votes, and I mean, I'm not, you know, there's no way to prove it because you can't say these people voted one way and they would have voted another way, but for the fact that they saw something on Facebook or something like that. But if you look at Jill Stein's election tally in the three states that decided the election in 2016, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, the margin that Hillary Clinton lost by is smaller than the number of votes that Jill Stein got. And the Russians were definitely amplifying Jill Stein just as much as they were pushing Trump. So again, like they were involved and we, we're not set up as a society to deal with close call elections. Like close call elections really stress our system out. That is true. All right, let's skip ahead and draw on your expertise to what happens next in Ukraine. What are the mechanisms by, well, a lot will depend on how this next phase of the war goes, but what convinces Putin to ever withdraw and how does he define withdrawal should it come to that? I understand, I understand how he would be convinced to stay and press on and occupy, that I get, but talk me through how he might say we're pulling out. 
I think that might be the wrong starting point, Mike, with all respect. I think that the question that we all need to be thinking about is why won't he stay? And what are, you know, what are the elements of resilience and, and endurance inside the way the Russian military operates, the way the Kremlin controls the society at large, that give him the confidence that despite all this humiliation, all these losses, he can stick it out. And I think what gives him that confidence is one, he's not accountable. There's no election coming up or there's no mechanism for average people to say, man, I'm really upset about this and Ukrainians are my brothers and we shouldn't be killing our brothers or my kid got killed and I'm mad as hell about that. He has done whatever he can to make sure that people are scared and compliant with the policy that he's he's laid out. The other thing is he thinks we will lose our nerve. He sees that if this is going to be a war that lasts a decade, let's just for argument's sake, give you that horrible you know prospect of a really, really long war, that we may not have the endurance, that we may have other priorities. Our politics may conspire against us. So if you had a Donald Trump-like figure becoming U.S. president, in January of 2025, like, you know, Trump clearly wouldn't care. Or Donald Trump. Trump himself, right? He wouldn't care about fighting this war. And then the final part is this word, which you don't really hear enough in the public debate, because we're all sort of focused on is Putin's health going to be the thing that, you know, solves our problem? Or will there be, you know, oligarchs who sneak into his office and hit him on the back of the head with a snuff box and, you know, assassinate him? People indulge in these magical thinking exercises as opposed to thinking about, wow, how is it we're going to sustain a war that looks like World War I and that involves the use of so much military equipment that we in the West are going to struggle to keep up with supplying Ukraine as well as meeting our own defense needs to deal with countries like China or the Middle East and contingencies that could erupt in either of those contexts? And that's what Putin is sort of betting at the moment. I, I think he's betting wrong, but he's betting that he can sustain and that we will lose our political will. And the people of Ukraine, in the last part of this, I should not leave out, have agency, right? Because they're showing that they're going to fight and they're not going to be bossed around by Joe Biden or anybody else to give up and make a deal with Vladimir Putin. And so there's an added component of this. It's not really just on the United States defense industry, whether we sustain this or not. It really comes back to what can Ukraine sustain? And that's a much more complicated situation. I do talk to experts. I talk to Charles Kupchan, maybe know him or even work with him in administrations. And he does say, you know, he talks to some powerful people within the Kremlin. There are mechanisms that there would be checks on him. From where I sit, I I have no idea. I'll take his word on it, but I haven't seen any evidence that there is an actual check on Putin, be it an institution himself, reality, a person. Are there? I think being... Vladimir Putin, best part is never having to say you're sorry, never having to ask permission, and being able to mobilize, not as well as you know the United States could mobilize, huge resources in pursuit of policies that are dumb. And trying to conquer Ukraine with this relatively small army in, Je- in February of 2024 was incredibly dumb. But he's still eager to do that and still believes that he can batter Ukraine to a point where if he can't have it, it's going to be so destroyed that the West is going to be stuck footing the bill and having to protect it. And that would be better for him than allowing Ukraine to emerge from the ashes and kind of become a prosperous, normal European country, which is clearly what the people of Ukraine want and are now all on the front lines willing to sacrifice their lives to get. He doesn't understand what makes Ukrainians different than Russians. He thinks that they're 
people who can be bossed around and cowed and directed. Ukrainians are showing like they don't need some person to ask them in the morning to do stuff. They will do it on their own to defend their land. Russians are just kind of different. And Putin has made just a fundamental pattern matching mistake in thinking that the people of Ukraine and the people of Russia are the same. They're, they're, they're fundamentally different. Pattern matching, imaging, mirroring, these are things that often come up. All right, last couple of questions about the form of the project itself. Why'd you want to do a graphic novel? Do you love them? Do you read them? There's some really great graphic novels that that I've always loved. You know, there's Mouse by Arch Spiegelman, there's Persepolis by Marjan Satrapi, there's some really uh, wicked, crazy books about uh, the Arab world by Riyad Satouf called uh, Arab of the Future. And these deal with serious, hard-hitting issues, but they're done in graphic novel form and they're no less impactful, they're no less cerebral. What I thought by doing this project that was important was to provide some kind of corrective to the image that has taken root in American society that, you know, Vladimir Putin is the embodiment, Dr. Evil, you know, he's this super brain, 10 feet tall, and that really gives him more status and standing than the actual guy and who he really is with all the limitations and all the, the baggage that's been accumulated. And I thought that this medium is a way to reach people who, like, I write memos for a living, right? I sit in a think tank. I you know, have a very privileged existence. But when I speak to people, I'm often speaking to a really narrow stratum of the foreign policy establishment, or I talk to the media, which is a great part of being in a think tank. But I'm not talking to teenagers, and I'm certainly not talking to people who are, you know, in society at large, for the most part. And this medium allows you to do that when it goes well. And so far, the feedback has been great. So it's a counter-influence measure. It's not necessarily aimed at a different age demographic, though that's part of it. It's aimed at pop culture consumers. The same kind of pop- All the above. But the same kind of pop culture consumers that love those, you know, lists of 39 times Vladimir Putin took his shirt off. You got to go in there and you got to give them the other side of that. Yeah. And I think, you know, Putin has become a larger than life figure in our pop culture and our politics, but it needs a corrective. And this this book is my attempt to say, let's look at who Russia is, see what makes Russia Russia, and also see what makes Putin Putin and do it in a way that isn't pre-cooked about what the answer is. And so if you're, you know, if you're a bit of a Russian nerd, you're still going to see things in this book that maybe you haven't thought, you know, were the case or that, that are new facts that are being mustered by me as part of my argument. If the 250 pages in the book were all prose, you could get literally more information. But I don't know if you were to compare it to a televised series or um, a documentary series that you're actually sacrificing the amount of information. Did writing the book in this form help you clarify, boil down, or think about the best ways to think about Putin? It really did. And and we should definitely talk for a second ago for a second about the artist who drew it. His name is Brian Brown. And working with an illustrator really forced me to be economical in terms of the points that I thought were absolutely essential. And then to figure out ways to tell the story without going into visual cliches. Like there are no dancing bears, there's no Matrushka dolls in this book. Really? No, not no one nests in anyone? Yeah. So it's deliberate wow. <laughs> way to try to get people to see Russia through Brian's eyes. And Brian, for people who don't know him, is this amazing graphic novelist who's never illustrated someone else's book, but has done 
things to kind of reinvent what graphic novels are as a genre. And he's written a couple wonderful books about pop culture topics like Andy Kaufman, the comedian, about Andre the Giant, and about Tetris. And he just has a different visual language than the kind of more Dick Tracy, noir, uh, Watchmen, or, you know, kind of traditional comics that a lot of us are used to seeing that are very literal. There's something very airy and sort of minimalist about the way Brian approaches visual imagery. Andrew S. Weiss is the James Family Chair and Vice President for Studies at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he oversees research on Russia and Eurasia. He is author of the book, the graphic novel illustrated by Brian Box Brown, Accidental Czar, The Life and Lies of Vladimir Putin. Thank you so much, Andrew. Really fun to be here. Thank you, Mike. Now the spiel. At the State of the Union, Joe Biden had a few highly celebrated moments, none more than when he performed a little ovation jujitsu, seeming to lock the Republicans into a position of vowing to leave Social Security and Medicare out of their debt ceiling fight. So, folks, as we all apparently agree, Social Security and Medicare is off the, off the books now, right? They're not to be stopped. All right immediately gelled into conventional wisdom that Biden understood the toxicity of threatening cuts to these entitlements and played the moment well on MSNBC. Lawrence O'Donnell said as much, and Representative Jerry Connolly of Virginia heartily agreed. So uh, I, I agree with you. I, I think President Biden was pretty clever in locking them in, and I think it's going to be awfully difficult to ever get out of that, that lockbox. The politics were so bad that Mitch McConnell took pains well, doesn't he always? To clarify, there will be no entitlement cuts as part of the debt ceiling negotiation. The member of his caucus, seen as the driving force behind advocating for these cuts, is Rick Scott of Florida. And McConnell sought to silence Scott, no, to neuter him, according to a tweet from former member of Congress and current MSNBC pundit Dave Jolly, quote, it would seem Rick Scott's embarrassing reversal on Medicare and Social Security can only be interpreted as a huge political victory for Joe Biden. Going into debt ceiling talks, Republicans have now been castrated on the issue. Castrated, gilded, made eunuchs. People couldn't understand why Rick Scott so bewilderingly was dense on this issue of Social Security and Medicare. Here's progressive talk show host Sam Cedar trying to come up with an explanation. McConnell's really only saying, like, right now we realize that we're not on great uh, footing to go after Social Security and Medicare. Like, we've lost this political battle and uh, because we had a ding-dong out there who um, <laughs> basically, um, you know, showed too much. Cedar went on to speculate that maybe Rick Scott has financial interests in private Medicare companies. I can't tell you how universal the opinion and the framing was that Rick Scott is wrong to threaten Social Security cuts, wrong to threaten Medicare, wrong to think it was a sensible proposal, wrong to think it would be anything other than political death. Okay, I get it. But is Rick Scott wrong on the actual policy? I mean, the politics overwhelm the policy. And that's what the coverage reflects. I see it at about 10 to 1 as I read stories on this. Terrible policy. What's he thinking? But 
might Rick Scott have a point? An unpopular point, an unrealistic point, but a somewhat, I don't know, accurate point? It does seem that everyone who ever talks about using all the tools to address our national debt and our budget deficit must have really bad motives. I mean, that's what it seems like. They're either venal or cruel. They're certainly not sincerely guided by an interest in addressing the debt because they know such a huge $30 trillion debt is bad and servicing it takes up so many of our resources, especially in a time of relatively high inflation. Of course, if they were sincere about it, if we were to do a thought experiment and say, well, let's say you were sincere about it, Uh, and you knew that cuts needed to happen as painful as they were, and you really felt the pain, what might you logically look at? I would think you'd look at the largest single budget item there is, Social Security, the only trillion-dollar-plus yearly expenditure. And Medicare would probably be up there, too. Right now, it's tied with defense spending, or almost tied, just about tied. Both are budgeted for about $750 billion a year. But Medicare is projected to rise a lot in the coming years. I mean, those would be logical things to look at. And Joe Biden showed that they were logical things to look at because several times when he was a senator, he said, nothing's off the table. I'd like to look at them. That's a fact that Bernie Sanders loves to repeat. Why shouldn't he? But it's odd that only greedy friends of fat cats like Rick Scott will now look into it or weird Wisconsinites like Ron Johnson or Paul Ryan before him. What's with the cruelty of these people? Don't they know how bad the politics are? It must mean the underlying logic is bad too. Isn't that how things work? The worth of an idea is directly tied to the political possibility of the idea being adopted? Hmm. Look, I'm glad that these things will not be part of the debt ceiling negotiation. You know why? Because I do not think there should be a debt ceiling negotiation. It's ridiculous to negotiate overpaying the bills that we've already incurred. And I know I'm not disputing that the politics are awful. And I, in fact, am resigned to not touching Medicare, Social Security, nor would I want to hurt the most vulnerable people who rely on those programs, though some wealthier people, not the most vulnerable, also rely on those programs. But putting that aside, as I guess I have to, the American people, I do believe, should be leveled with. If we're not going to touch the entitlements, our task in balancing the budget or paying down the debt, which is a really burdensome and necessary task, becomes that much harder, which is to say quite hard. And we're going to have to make harder choices with other programs that vulnerable people also rely on. But why level with the people and include the phrase hard choices? What are we, Walter Mondale, destined to lose all states but Minnesota on a belt tightening platform? I don't expect politicians to level with the people when it's so damn easy to just level the opponent. I would like to see the media, you know, these these watchdogs, guardians, truth tellers tackle this. Not just the fellows of AEI or Heritage, but uh, how about Paul Krugman? How about Catherine Rampell? How about CNBC? More often than they do. How about anyone once on MSNBC? How about those diamond hand guys on Reddit? Okay, they're not the media, but the sentiment has got to become a lot more common than it is. It once was. Whenever you watch a show about the pressures of kids growing up in the 80s, they would talk maybe about the hole in the ozone layer, and they'd maybe talk about the threat of nuclear war, and they definitely would talk about the national debt. That seems to have been eliminated as a worry. I say bring back the worry. 
A burgeoning national debt is not good. I know MMT and socialism and to be fair, a lack of consequences that we actually felt when the debt was really high during periods of super low inflation in the past decades, it offered what seemed to be a rebuttal or a chance to rethink the very notion that debt is bad. But debt is bad. But the countervailing idea is still out there. To quote progressive blogger Oliver Willis, here's a headline and subhead of a recent column he wrote, nobody cares about the deficit and Democrats should shut up about it. Spend what is needed to make lives better He writes, Biden and every other Democrat holding elected office would ideally never mention the budget deficit again because it doesn't matter at all. Willis is wrong and not a terribly important voice, but representative of a loud faction that makes it so concern over the debt is no longer a bipartisan concern. And if there is a lively part of one party that really thinks that this concern is a lie or a gambit or a bad faith ploy, then it becomes that much harder to address. What I'm telling you is a legitimate concern. And that's where we are now. Gladly, entitlements won't be touched as part of our ridiculous debt ceiling horse trading. But the politics and the obsession over the politics, instead of the underlying issues, guarantees that a necessary conversation and necessary choices that need to be made will not be made. And given that the Social Security Trust Fund won't be able to meet all its obligations starting in 2035... I don't say any of this as a backdoor or a sideward glance at an attempt to gut or weaken Social Security. I say this as a plea to save the very good and necessary program that is Social Security. But who's listening to my pleas? Who's listening above the ovations earned for clever politics? And that's it for today's show. Corey Juarez, the producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the COO. Quite a coup for Peachfish Productions to land that singular talent. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, And thanks for listening.